0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, church family. Isn't it great to be gathered together with people that are like family? I don't know. Uh, I know in a church our size, you can't know everybody here, but uh, hopefully uh, you've been able to connect with some folks and be able to connect out in the lobby uh, and in the comments if you're online. It's uh, great to see so many of you uh, here today, and uh, hopefully it'll be a blessing to you. We're going to have some fun in God's Word. You ready? There's going to be some tough truths, but they're all going to be good for us because they're about our Savior Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 today. We've been doing this series called Jesus Changes Everything. And so we've been walking through the book of Colossians verse by verse. We left off last week in Colossians chapter 2 verse 5. We're going to pick up in verse 6 today. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Colossians chapter 2 verse 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can go to the app store while I'm praying. I won't tell. God loves you anyways. And uh, download the Southbridge app, and there's a Bible in there. Otherwise, a lot of the verses I'll share will be up on the screen this morning. But let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you we can gather in your name. Thank you we can worship you. Uh, thank you, even as Nikki was sharing about the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We know without the, the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for our sins. And that your son, Jesus, shed his blood so we could be forgiven. And, and all of us in here, and all of us that are watching online, and all of us that are gathered, even around the world, not just here in the Triangle, but around the world, because of your shed blood, we rejoice uh, that you would sacrifice like that for us. And those that are here that are maybe curious or skeptical or or maybe veering off and they've got secret sin and they're just playing a game, Father, I pray you'd speak to all of them too. God, I pray for all of us that we would be more like your son Jesus when we walk out of here than we were when we walked in. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. They are the most elite fighting force in the world. If you've read books about them or you've watched documentaries or you might even watch TV shows that are named after them, they are heroes in America. They're the U.S. Navy SEALs. You may see them and wonder how in the world can they you know, swim underneath a boat and then go miles to go and rescue somebody or fight in the mountains and run through a building with precision shooting. How do you get to that level? They've got some pretty intense training. The most uh, famous of all of their training is called BUDS. It's a a five-and-a-half-week training time. BUD stands for uh, Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Team Training. If you've ever read books on this or you know somebody who is a SEAL or maybe you yourself are a SEAL or were a SEAL at one time, uh, then you know that the five-and-a-half-week training is not just to equip you. It's also to weed out the people that aren't going to make it. In fact, the graduation rate for BUDS is about 20 to 25%. So you think about that, you send in 200 guys, and you know only about 40 of them are going to make it through. And if you start reading about what they do over the five and a half weeks, it could seem cruel what takes place, uh, because they'll take them and they, you only get about four hours of sleep uh, in that five and a half week time period that you are together, and they will do mental tests for you. They're going to do endurance tests, physical tests, you're going to be running on the beach with logs over your head in the sand, and uh, it seems like it's to get you in shape, but really what they're trying to figure out is can you make it? Are you going to quit? Uh, The drill instructors will take you out on the beach in the middle of the night and have you fight off cold and hypothermia as you lay and the ocean comes in and you're supposed to sing songs with the guys that you're locked arms with. And in the meantime, the instructors will taunt you, mock you, offer you coffee. All you have to do is quit. To quit, you just go ring a bell. Seventy-five percent of the people there will go ring the bell. And then they'll give you coffee and donuts that you can eat in front of your former classmates in your comfort but you will never be a seal because you quit. So why does some make it? I was reading one guy. His name is Don Mann. If you want to look him up online, he's written some books, an author. And he talks about his time in Buds. And he talks about how one time, he was one of the most difficult moments when he found himself where his ankles were bound together. They were in a pool and his hands were bound behind his back and they were swimming uh, to try and tread water and stay above. He said, every time I would pop my head up above the water, I would hear my classmates, teammates, gasping and coughing. So, there was one guy who decided to rest his head on a rope in the pool to try and get a little break. They walked over. One of the instructors hit him in the head with an aluminum stick. The guy fell to the bottom of the pool, and I thought to myself, how hardcore is this? They just killed that guy, and we're still all in here, and he's trying to tread water. They didn't kill the guy. They brought him back up, resuscitated him, then kicked him out of buds because he was cheating for resting his head on the rope in the pool. Don said that his most uh, gruesome time was when they told him to, to jump into the pool, the deep end of the pool, and they were, he was supposed to swim to a 25-meter pool down and back without coming back up. Now, this guy was in great physical shape. He had run 30 marathons in 36 months to prepare for this time period. They do push-ups, sit-ups. Like Physically, he was in great shape, but he was mentally worn down. He hadn't had sleep in a long time. He tells him to swim across this pool. He said, I, I made the turn, and as I was coming past that turn, it felt like somebody was stabbing my head. My scalp with a a spike. And he said, And all I could think is, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. He wanted more than anything to be a Navy SEAL. But he said, I pushed myself up to the surface and I thought, my dream has just died. They gave him another chance, jumped back in the pool, swam down. He didn't make it on the way back either. He passed out at the bottom of the pool. But they knew he wouldn't quit. He became a, a SEAL operator of the famous SEAL Team 6 and is now an author. But what the Navy doesn't know, and the military, we've done studies on it, we don't know the answer, is how do you know who's going to quit and who's not going to quit? Why do I share that with you today? Because today's message in Colossians chapter 2, it could be summarized by a famous speech by Jimmy Valvano. They play it every year around college basketball season. He's full of cancer. He's speaking to the ESPYs. and, And the summary of the speech is this, don't give up. Don't ever give up. And my temptation to you as a pastor today is to encourage you and inspire you and tell you to never give up. Here's the reality, though. Like, the truth is, just from 15 years of being a pastor, just from reading the studies, just from seeing what's happened through the pandemic, just from statistically we know what's true, is that a good percentage of people that are watching online right now, that are sitting in this room, will not be following Jesus in five years. Why? Lots of reasons. Circumstances, sin, distractions, all kinds of things are going to come up. And I want to challenge you today, don't be one of those people. Don't give up. I've titled today's message, Keep Walking, because the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses in the passage, but really what we're talking about is how to remain faithful to Christ. Because while the U.S. military doesn't know why some people quit and some people stay faithful, the Bible does tell us why some people quit their faith and how we can stay faithful. It's in Colossians chapter 2 today, if you've got your Bible. The Apostle Paul's been writing to these Colossian believers and telling them how Jesus changes everything. Amen? Amen? We started in week one looking at this transformational prayer that the Apostle Paul prays. He says, I pray that you know God's will. Why? so that you can walk worthy of the Lord. Well, why would you wanna do that? Because he's done an amazing work in you. He's transferred you from a kingdom of darkness. See, there are people that you disagree with, follower of Jesus, and you can't imagine, how can they see the world the way they see it? They must be wanting to destroy the world, the church, me as a Christian, their own lives. But the reality is they're living in darkness. They think what they're doing is right. And you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's son, Jesus. Who is he? Well, we saw he is the image of the invisible God. Amen? He is the firstborn of all creation. He's the sustainer of creation. He's the head of the church. He is worthy of us to continue to follow. He's the one who made you holy. You. You you know you. He made you holy. That's crazy, isn't it? Knowing how sinful you are. I know how sinful I am. That God sees me as holy and blameless and above reproach. So what do we do? We walk with him. And We talked about last week the mystery of maturity, what it looks like to grow as a Christian to the place where we can rejoice in our suffering, where we repeat the gospel regularly, where we live in community like family with one another on mission for him. But how do we stay faithful to that? That's what Paul talks about today. Pick it up in verse six. He starts with the word therefore. He's connecting back to that mystery of maturity that we looked at last week in chapter two, verses one through five. He says, therefore... As you received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so where you started, so, and here's the analogy, walk in Him. And then he uses a bunch of word pictures here. He mixes metaphors together. He says, rooted, that's the idea of agriculture, a tree with roots that grow deep in the soil, and built up. That's architecture. So, a building that gets built, and you're not the one who does the building. God's the one who builds you up. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. How? Just as you were taught. At the beginning, abounding in thanksgiving. The analogy he he uses here is of walking. It's a popular analogy, not only in the book of Colossians, but throughout the Bible. Colossians chapter 1, I already alluded to when I was giving you the summary of the book. We're supposed to walk worthy of the Lord. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2, it says here, to walk as we began. Chapter 3 is going to say, you used to walk in darkness. Now you walk a different way. Chapter 4 is going to talk about walking in wisdom with the outsiders, with people who don't understand the gospel. A close book, companion book to Colossians, geographically and in your Bible, is the book of Ephesians. Let me read you some verses from Ephesians that talk about walking. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is a verse. If you're looking for a life verse, this is a great one to consider. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 says that we're supposed to walk worthy of our calling Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Later in that chapter, verse 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so when the Bible keeps talking about walk, it's talking about living. It's an analogy for the Christian life. Your walk is your Christian journey. Walk worthy of the calling that you have. God's planned for you good works from the beginning of time. Walk in those good. Live that way. Live that life. And so when Paul says here in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, so walk in him, what he's saying is the way that you began in your relationship with Jesus, keep going. Remain faithful. The question is how? How do I do that? And we see a couple answers as we continue to walk through this passage. The first one is this. this is our first point. Well, I got two points today. First one is this. You must live, walk, must live alert to the dangers of deception. Must live alert to the dangers of deception. What do I get that? Next verse. Colossians chapter two, verse eight. See to it. There's a the command. Be alert. See to it. That no one takes you captive. That's a strong word. We'll come back to that by philosophy and empty deceit. There's the deception. Interestingly, he calls it empty deceit. Look what he says next. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Things seem to make sense. They seem to be true, but they take you away from Jesus. Verse 9, for in Him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. Interesting that that word fullness is used there. We've already described deception as empty. Now, Jesus is described as full. is the fullness of deity. It means that God, Jesus is fully God, fully man. But look at the implication of that. And you have been filled in him. So if you're going to find fulfillment, it's from Christ. Amen? But there's empty deceit that's going to tell you that fulfillment's going to come from other places. It promises something. It promises on the outward a shell of something. When you get it, it's empty. It's deceptive. And here's the reality. We've all been deceived before, right? Like, just think in your life. Did you believe anything that wasn't true when you were a kid? Some of you parents are nervous, like, is he going to talk about the characters? Come on now. I've gotten enough emails about that over the years. I'm not doing that anymore, all right? <laughs> but think about lies you believed when you were a kid. And Maybe I just had a lot of bullies in my life, older kids hanging around with me. Did anybody ever tell you when you were a kid if you put your hand up to your face and your hand's bigger than your face, then something's wrong with you. Like whatever it was at that point, like you got cancer, your arm's too long, like you're going to be, you know, super tall. I don't know what it is they tell you. They say, put your hand, what they're doing is they get you to put your hand up to your face so they can hit your hand and punch you in the face, right? Somebody just did it. Oh my goodness. I love it. Parents, we're praying for you. Uh, Glad that you're here. What about, did anybody ever tell you, I believed this one when I was a kid. Maybe it was just, maybe it was like a Michigan thing. I'm from Michigan. I was told that if, if I made a funny face and somebody hit me on the back, that my face would freeze that way. Anybody, anybody else believe that? Anybody believe that? i got at least a couple. All right a, few, all right, a few of you have been deceived like I've been deceived before. I, there was no facts to back that up, by the way. Like I didn't have any friends to walk around like a crazy face, like my brother hit me in the back. Like that, that never happened. I just believed it. It was not true. People are lying to me. My friends lie to me. You know what else I found out? My parents lie to me. Your parents lied to you too. Did your parents ever say this to you? You can't go swimming after you eat unless you wait 30 minutes or 60 minutes. Let me tell you something. I've tried it. Nothing happens. And now that I'm a parent, I know why they lied. Do you know why they lied? They wanted a break. They've been trying to save your life the whole time you've been in the pool. And they're like, go eat some watermelon. And then you can't get back in the pool for like 30 minutes. Or they're tired of you going, Dad, watch. Mom, look at this. Hey, it's just exhausting. And so they're like, you can't swim for 30 minutes. They're like, just making stuff up parents lie to you, your friends lie to you, your spouse lies to you. I don't, I'm not trying to cause marital problems. Have you, you probably know your spouse well. Have you ever seen your spouse before? You know that something's wrong. You ask them, how's it going? And they go, I'm fine. Not only are they lying to you, they want you to know that they're lying to you. And I'll just test this. And you guys can try this out this week. And uh, I'm going on sabbatical, so you can't make a pastoral appointment afterwards. But here's how this goes. Uh, next time you say husbands to your wives, how are you doing? And she says, fine. Pretend like you believe her. Say, that's amazing. I thought you had a whole bunch of drama going on with your family. Do you want to dump it on me? But since you're doing good, I'm going golfing. See you later. Not only are they lying to you, they want you to know they're lying to you. Are you alert of the lies? Paul's telling us here in this passage when he says, see to it. It's a, a present command, meaning it's a continual danger. See to it. Be alert. It's a warning, kind of like a warning label on an item. Warning. There's deception out there, but he's talking about a deception, this empty deceit that will derail you in your faith. And most of us know, if you've been in church for very long, that Satan's a deceiver, that his native language is lying. Uh, Jesus says that in the New Testament. We read about it in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the first sin happen because somebody believed a lie. When Satan comes disguised as a serpent, it says to Eve, surely God didn't say. Then she misinterprets what God says, and then he says, God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want you to know. You're not going to meet your full potential. There's more for you than what God has for you. You just got to go outside the bounds of God's guidelines, and then you can have these. And we see the deception there. And most of us are equipped that if a serpent ever approaches us, we know we're not supposed to talk to it. But that doesn't do us much good today, because I'm going to guess most of you probably haven't had a serpent come up to you, speaking to you. And so what you do is you read the rest of the Bible, and what you see is that Satan, in his native tongue of lying, usually works through other people. We'll label them oftentimes false teachers in the Bible. And oftentimes we think of that as somebody on TV that's trying to get your money, and they're, they make some crazy promise like, if you send me all your money, then you'll have more money. I don't know how that's supposed to work. But they'll take some Bible verses and twist it, and, and that's what's supposed to take place. And, and that's all we think of for false teachers. Let me tell you something. Every false teacher doesn't have a microphone. Now, just because somebody has a microphone doesn't mean they're right. Just so you know, you should test everything I say today by the Bible. And every time somebody stands on a stage to teach you the Bible, is that what the Bible actually says? But oftentimes false teachers sit in your kitchen after small group's over with, and they give you advice, and they're sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly lying to you. Be alert be aware there's deception. It'll derail your faith. There's empty promises. And we could list the promises, right? Like I could tell you false things that many Christians believe. I could talk about false gospels. I could talk about functional saviors. I could talk about famous lies. Look at how that alliterated. See that? False gospels, famous lies. You can see all that work. But here's the deal. There's too many of them out there for us to identify every lie and deconstruct it. We could talk about false gospels. I've mentioned the prosperity gospel with you before. You know, the problem with the prosperity gospel, it doesn't even worship God. It uses God to get your true God, a functional Savior of wealth and health. There's a therapeutic gospel that's out there that presents God as if He exists for your sake rather than we exist for His, that He just wants you to be happy and you to have self-fulfillment, but you actually were created for His glory. It's contrary to that. It leads you away from God. These things lead you to yourself. You see, social gospel, social gospel wasn't new with the 2020 pandemic, just so you know. It's been happening for a long time, and it's people that want to do good things in the community. They want to social reform, and then they take Jesus like he was a social reformer, ignoring the fact he never talked about any of the political problems that were happening in his day, ignoring the fact all the things he could have addressed that he didn't address. It's not wrong to do good things, but what happens is when you're focused on social reform, Is that you miss sin, and that's what Jesus came to address. You miss eternity, and that's what Jesus came to deal with. It was the bigger problems that then would transform the other stuff. Christian nationalism, like you can go through false gospels all day long, false promises. What about, there's oftentimes, you want to talk about well-meaning people? We talk about wolves in sheep's clothing, people trying to fleece you, trying to get something from you, trying to use you, trying to do something detrimental to you. But when Jesus confronts people like the religious leaders of his day, they think they're following God. He says in John chapter 8 and verse 44, your father is the devil. They're offended. He says, he's a murderer from the beginning, the devil. He speaks lies. And he's telling the Pharisees, the people that were teaching all the people at that time, you're liars. They didn't know it. They thought they were teaching the truth. Some of you have Christian friends that will try and give you advice in difficult times. They'll say things like this. God will never give you more than you can handle. Problem. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually says God will give you more than you can handle so that you'll depend upon Him. What about this one? You've probably heard this. It'll probably be on your social media today. God only gives hard things to strong people. Really? Because the Bible actually says that it's through our weaknesses that He's made known. Are you struggling in a relationship? With a boss, with a spouse, with… Irreconcilable differences, normal language, and Christians use it too. Do you know the gospel? Talk about irreconcilable differences. Us and God? Look what God did. See, there's nothing irreconcilable by God. That's a picture of the gospel. And so there are people that are well-meaning that will give you awful advice that will lead you away from Jesus. And then Satan's always out there offering those functional saviors. Success, money, power, other people's opinions of you. What is your functional savior? See, we know the truth of the Bible. You can't have more than one master, but how many people in church believe the deception? But I'm the exception. And so I'm gonna, money's gonna be the thing and I got Jesus on the side. You'll love one, you'll hate the other, the Bible says. And so we believe these lies, they take us on detours away from God. It's like, I was talking with a couple before the first service, and they were telling me they were going to go to Williamsburg uh, this week and have a little vacation. It reminded me, one time, my wife and I took our girls up to Williamsburg. It's historic, and there's a lot of American history there. But I'd never been there. set the context, I'm directionally challenged. Uh, I depend heavily on GPS. And I'd never been to this place before. We were staying uh, close to the William and Mary campus, college campus. And I told my wife one morning, I said, I'm going to go on a jog. I want to see the campus. I'm going to jog around here. I'm planning on doing about three miles. So it shouldn't take me that long out there to jog three miles through the campus. I go out, jog through the campus. It's beautiful. Like all colleges, they're always building buildings. So there's detours and there's turns. And I keep thinking I'm going to loop around. But then somehow I didn't know where I was at. I'm about three miles into this run. I was only planning on running three miles total. I'm three miles into this run. And I'm like, I do not know how to get back. So I pull out my GPS. It's hard to get lost nowadays. And I hit in my GPS, the address for the hotel, which I already had in there from where we had driven there. And it tells me, how, and I, I looked, I'm like, oh, it's, it's about a mile away, but I never stopped running. And you know what else I didn't do? I didn't change it from driving to walking. <laughs> the mile away was a mile to the expressway. And I realized that when I popped out of the street and I'm like, this is four lanes. These people are driving 70 miles an hour and it's telling me I'm on the wrong side. I didn't realize it was in driving mode at that moment. So I actually managed to cross, uh, did, did you ever play that game Frogger when you were a kid? I crossed the road, crossed the median, got to the other side, and then it told me when I got up about a mile away, I had to turn left. I'm like, I can't even, I got to cross back over. So I cross back over and then I stop because now I'm frustrated. And I look at it and it says eight miles. Huh? No. I'm not doing that. I'm mad. So I call my wife. She never answers her phone. She didn't answer the phone. She had gone to breakfast with the girls. And so nobody was there. So now I'm like, I got no choice. I got to try and go back. So I go back. It was hot out. It was terrible. It was 100% my fault. But I was going to make everybody else miserable. I was mad. I got back. I'm, why didn't you answer your phone? How come you didn't do this? And Shanna just asked me this simple question so Why don't you just turn around and go back? I hadn't thought of that. I honestly just kept thinking, it's going to be right around the corner. Is that just the, it's the next turn. Once I get around the next corner, I'm going to know it. And then I, I thought, how much is that like this passage? The empty deceit. It promises fulfillment. And you think, I'll just, just a little bit more. And maybe just if I had a little bit more money, if somebody else told me I was great, if I had this thing, if I accomplished this goal, if I got this success, and it never works. And you get further and further from Jesus. And what does he say? On this passage, he says, you keep walking the way you began. If you've gotten off track then, the answer is, turn around and go back. It's like Jesus says to the church in Revelation 2, the church at Ephesus. He says, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. What do we do? Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, you're not going to continue. I'm going to take away your influence. Is what he goes on to say. But that's what he's saying here in Colossians as well. He says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ the Lord, so walk in. Remember the beginning. Remember when you fell in love with Jesus. Remember yourself. And if you've gotten off track from that, some of you have gotten distracted. It's been a long time since you were close with Jesus. Some of you have just turned from him. And he says, come back. Remember where you were once. Remember how much you loved me? Repent. That means turn and return. Come back home. It's like the prodigal. The prodigal son comes to the realization that he'd be better off at his father's house and he comes back and then the prodigal God comes running after him. The father comes and gets him. He welcomes you back every time. But if you don't, be alert. See to it. Remember that dangerous word that was in verse eight? See to it that no one takes you captive. Captive. The word uh, here for captivity is to be uh, taken away from something. It's to be kidnapped. I don't know uh, where all of you live. I know people come from different areas. Um, they're here, Holly Springs and Youngsville and, and all kinds of things. But in our neighborhood, we've got an app. It's called uh, Nextdoor. And it's a great place if you want to complain that your neighbor's lawn is too long or somebody drove too fast through the neighborhood. Uh, it causes lots of division in a community. But there's actually a good use for it. Last Friday, I was uh, sitting at my computer, and I've got my text messages set up so they can pop up on there, and I got a text message uh, from the Nextdoor app saying there was a guy in a golden sedan that was driving through the neighborhood and had just tried, it It was from a mom, tried to pick up this this mom's eight-year-old son and his friend, tried to get him to get in the car. She called the police. She said when she talked to the police, she said not only is there that guy, but the police said there's a red truck that's driving around in your area offering kids candy. Now, why as a parent does that bother you? Why as just a concerned citizen does that bother you? Why even as a kid does that bother you? Here's why. Because you know that somebody's going to kidnap you. They're not taking you to give you a better life than the one you currently have. But the promise and candy is empty deceit. What Paul's saying here is be alert of the empty deceit or you will be held in bondage. It will not be good for you. I was thinking about it this week like in fishing. Have you ever thought about fishing from the perspective of the fish? Like what must it be like to be underneath that boat, swimming around, and there's this juicy worm? It looks good. It probably tastes good when you first get it, until you're hooked, and the next thing you know, you're inside the boat. You're getting gutted for somebody else's consumption. That's what sin is like. going to lead you away by our own sinful desires, by Satan's deception. Be alert. That's the first way you remain faithful is realize there's someone who wants to destroy you and he uses other people to do it. Sometimes your friends. Be alert. Not only that, if you go through verses 11 through 15 here, you must live aligned with your identity in Christ. You must live aligned with your identity in Christ. Let me read that to you in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 in the Bible's language. It says, in him, talking about Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Wow. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen. And then verse 15 is my favorite. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Talk about military language. Talk about seals. He, dis, he disarmed, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. In Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But if you go back to the beginning here, it's strange that he starts with circumcision. That's not something usually uh, we talk about. I doubt many of you are gonna go uh, to lunch today and somebody going go, well, about circumcision. Let's talk a little bit more. Do you see Read right that in the Bible? Is, it's kind of a strange thing. But what we need to understand is circumcision, we oftentimes just think physical. Notice he said it here, it's without hands. And what it actually was in the Bible, and you can read this on your own, Genesis chapter 17, verse 11, when Abram is told to be circumcised, he is a pagan from Iraq who's not a Jew. There were no Jews. Not in a relationship with God. He's a, he, he was an idol worshiping, worshiped a moon god. He leaves that land. He comes to follow God. And God says, here's the symbol of our new relationship and your new identity. Not only a new name, Abraham, but you're going to be circumcised. And so that cutting off was a cutting off of his, of his genealogy to start a new identity, a new beginning. Circumcision was a sign of a new identity. And what we see in this passage is that what happened for us was not the physical circumcision on our bodies, but a circumcision without hands. The Old Testament talks about this, that we're going to receive a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 26, it says that we have a heart of stone. We're not sensitive to God. We may have thoughts about God. We may say we believe God. We may even think that we follow God, but we're not in relationship with God. He's going to take that heart of stone at the moment of your salvation. He's going to give you a heart of flesh. He's going to cleanse you of all your idols, all the functional saviors, and give you the heart of flesh. Romans chapter 2 calls the circumcision of the heart. That's what Paul's talking about here is the heart surgery that happened at the moment of your salvation. I was reading this week on a, uh, a website of a hospital, an incredible medical procedure that was done for this, this young boy. His name is Noah Conley. Noah, they found in utero that he had a heart disease, a heart problem. Um, to spare you all the details of the medical stuff, you can go look it up yourself if you want to. Uh, only half of his heart worked. He was born essentially with half of a heart. Technology has become so incredible in what they can do. I mean, it's silly to me that they would argue about whether a child is a person in the womb. They're doing surgeries on them in utero. The first heart surgery that he had was 28 weeks in utero. The second heart surgery he had was one week after uh, his birth. The last heart surgery he had was on March 2nd. And on March 2nd, they said he's going to survive. His mom, Nicole, said he is an absolute miracle. And when she realized that he was going to survive, she said, now our lives can begin. Let me tell you, follower of Jesus Christ, Think back to when you trusted Christ. I don't know if you were four or you were 40, but think back to that moment when you realized you had sin and you needed a savior and God opened your eyes to see that Jesus was that savior. At that moment, God was doing heart surgery on you and a new life began. That's why the passage then alludes to baptism here because in baptism, what's being symbolized for us is an identification with that new identity. Some of you here might need to be baptized. If you want to be baptized, just even during this message right now or you're watching online or here in this room, you can text the number that's on the screen. But what baptism symbolizes is, and that's one of the reasons why we dunk people under the water, is buried with Christ in baptism. Romans chapter 6, raised to walk in a new way of life. When someone says they want to be baptized, they're saying, I've started a new life with Christ, and I want people to know that I've died to sin. That's the first part of life. You're going to identify with the resurrection of Christ. You identify with the death of Christ. I'm dying to sin, and I'm being raised to walk in a new way of life. That's our identifying factor. When that circumcision of heart takes place, then it says that we were baptized with Him. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven your trespasses. You've been made alive. Amen? And so, what He's talking about here, when He talks about you being made alive, and He talks about your forgiveness, and He talks about His victory, He's talking about your position in Christ, your identity in Christ. So you have a new identity when that heart surgery takes place, and then the Bible talks about all throughout what that identity is. Ephesians chapter 1, you're adopted into God's family. Whenever I, I pray with someone that trusts Christ as their Savior, I almost always take them to John chapter 1, verse 12. If you don't know John chapter 1, verse 12, I challenge you in your own Bible to go and mark it. It says this, those who believe on him, he's given them the right to be called children of God. Do you know what that means? New identity. John talks about it. Peter talks about us as you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Jesus talks about us as you're the salt of the world, the light of the world. Paul's talking about it here in this passage, he talks about it in Ephesians, he talks about it in a lot of his works. Here's the problem with teaching Christians or people in the church about their identity in Christ. I think this is the mistake that many of us make as counselors, as pastors, as Bible teachers, is that we think to ourselves, if I could just tell them these glorious truths, and they are glorious truths then they get the right think in their mind that would lead to right living. But the problem is we don't start with this truth that we started with right here. And these people aren't alive in Christ. They've assimilated into church. Their hearts are dead to him. And we're telling them, you're the light of the world. And you're wondering why they don't have any influence for Jesus. Because they're dead spiritually. You tell people that you're a royal priesthood. You've got direct access to God. He is your your high priest. And you can approach him at any moment at the throne of grace. It's like, but I feel so disconnected. Because You are you're dead. But if if you're alive in Christ and the sign of that is that you've died to sin and you're living a new life. That's Christian maturity. See this passage connects back to what we talked about last week in verse 6. It starts with the word therefore, remember? Remember last week we were talking about the mystery of maturity and rejoicing in su- Paul used his ministry as a model of rejoicing and suffering, repeating the gospel regularly, living in community, and we said here's, here's some of the signs of maturity. And he says, therefore, keep going, and then he gets into more of what maturity looks like. I did not share with you last week a quote that's been so huge for me in understanding what does it mean to be mature in Christ? Because somebody can say to me, like, it means looking like Jesus. I'm like, oh, I'm not there yet, and so I guess I'm not mature. Like, what does it mean then? How do I know if I'm maturing? There's a guy who wrote his doctorate on Christian maturity. His name is Jim Samra, and the definition he gave uh, was revolutionary for me. I'll just share it with you. It's up on the screen if you want to take a picture. It says, a mature believer is a believer whose life conforms to his or her status as an heir of God's kingdom. So your life lines up with the truths that we see in the Bible of what God says about you at the moment of your salvation. And the Bible says a lot about you. If you are alive in Christ, you've died your sin, you've been risen with Christ, you've been crucified with Christ, it's Christ it's no longer you who lives, it's Christ who lives in you. If that is actually true about you, then you're complete in Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. You're fulfilled in Christ. You're actually, if anybody tells you you're lacking, they don't understand your identity. That, that you've been adopted, that you're a royal priesthood, like that these things are true in you. And what maturity looks like, Sam saying is, when these things that are true line up with your behavior. So when your belief and your behavior are aligned with one another, that's a sign of maturity. When, you're, when the position you have in Christ is lined up with your practice in Christ, that's maturity. So what that means is when there's a lack of alignment, like have you ever had your car aligned before? I remember one time I went over to Glenwood Avenue, that place called uh, AAA, Auto, I mean, the discount tire said, you've got to get your tires aligned. Well, I was like, you're a tire place. Like, yeah, we don't do alignments. Got to go over there. So I went over there, paid them the money, get the car aligned. I'm not a mechanic, but when I drove away, my steering wheel was literally like this and the car was driving straight. That's not right. And so I called them. I said, hey, I, I, I don't think this is Right. Bring it back. And he started laughing when he saw it. He's like, I don't have any idea how we did this. They <laughs> had to put the steering wheel like on wrong or something. I don't know what they did. But it, the, it was off. Listen, when you, when you are told these things that are true about you in the Scriptures and your behavior doesn't line up with that, one of two things is true. Either you're not really a Christian or you're an immature Christian. The sign of the maturity is when these things align. What Paul's talking to us about here is that these things should line up with our behavior. And the first one he gives us that we're alive in Christ. He says in verse 13 that you you, you die to your sin, you've been made alive in Christ. You've got a new identity, and the new identity is you are alive in Christ. How do you know if somebody's alive? I read a story this week. It was unbelievable to me. Like, I read a lot of stories uh, just thinking, you know, lessons that we can learn from them, things like that. And I read this story. It's rare that I read when I'm like, is that really true? But I've had to verify it, looked at other sources. I read a story about a guy who in 2004 was found behind a Burger King unconscious, naked, and sunburnt. No signs of his life before that. No car was stolen, no robbery. And so this guy comes out five o'clock in the morning in in, uh, Georgia, comes out and then behind this Burger King finds this guy out here. He's got blunt force trauma to his head. They call the ambulance, come pick him up. It takes 11 years to figure out his identity. And we woke up, he had amnesia. He didn't know who he was. They put him on the news they did a documentary, Somebody, a filmmaker from Florida State University came and did a film on him. Uh, they put him on Dr. Phil. They hypnotized him. They did DNA testing. They did all kinds of things. They couldn't find his identity. It took 11 years. Now, here's what I want you to think about. What if you were the employee at that Burger King in 2004? It's 5 o'clock in the morning. You just got to work. You go walk around back. There's a naked guy laying there unconscious. You're not thinking to yourself, let's put that guy on Dr. Phil. We've got to find his family. You know what you want to know? Is he alive? So what do you check? You check his pulse. Does he have a heartbeat? There's a reason why when Jesus is asked the question, what's the most important commandment by a lawyer? He says, love God and love your neighbor. It's the heart of God. It's the desires he's going after. Do you love God? There's a sign. You want to know if there's a sign of life? Do you love God? And how do you see that? Do you love other people? Do you see it? Not perfectly all the time. I understand we're all sinful. We're all in process. But do you love other people the way that Jesus loved you? Because that's what Ephesians says, walk as you've been loved. Signs of life is that you would love the way that he's been loved. The Bible says in John chapter 13, he shows the full extent of his love. And you know what he does right after that? He washes his disciples' feet. And there's a lot we could say about that passage and how low of a task that was. And if you're familiar with John 13, you know they were arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus certainly was the greatest among them. But he takes off his rabbi robe and puts on a towel. How does he do that? Let me read you some verses from John chapter 13. We'll put them on the screen. John chapter 13, it says this, verse two, "During supper, when the devil had entered, or when the devil had already put into the, uh, the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, to betray Jesus. Jesus, knowing listen to this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Let me tell you something, when you're alive in Christ and you're focused on Christ, you don't have to worry about whatever else is thinking about you, you can step into what God's called you to. Jesus, knowing where he came from and knowing where Jesus secure in his identity, demonstrated his life, his love. You know what he says to his disciples at the end of that passage? People are gonna know you're my disciples if you do what I did, love one another. That's how they know. You're alive in Christ, they lined up, that's a sign of maturity, not only that, but it says here, not only are you alive in Christ, are you forgiven? Look what it says here in this passage about forgiveness. So your identity is you are forgiven in Christ. Amen? Listen to how Paul says it. And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, so you went from death to life, having forgiven us all our trespasses. All of them? How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you remember when you first got a credit card? Remember when you were in college or just got out of college or in high school, whenever you got your card. Wasn't it amazing you go to any store, any website, all you have to do is show them this plastic, and they give you whatever you want. It's amazing. Go to whatever restaurant, they can give you whatever. Nobody's going to tell you you can't have it. you got the plastic. And so you just hand them the plastic, and they give you what you want. And do you know what? Why that's not amazing? Because about 30 days later, they're going to send you a bill, right? And you're going to actually have to pay for all those things. And you know what i found to be true about the credit card companies over the years? They never miss a charge. They might add one every once in a while, but they never miss one. In fact, they can tell you where you bought it, where that company is located, where their home base is, the minute you bought it, the second you bought it. In fact, if you called them today, and you can go ahead and do this and say, can you tell me all the things I bought over the last year? They can give you a record of all that. They can put it in categories, this much for groceries, this much for entertainment, this much for... They got a record of all that debt. Now say your bill came back from that first credit card and it was $5,000. Maybe the minimum payment was $100 or I don't know how they do the calculation, $150, $50, whatever it was. And you just paid the minimum payment. It didn't take you a while to pay that off. It says here that all of our debt was canceled. So if I asked you, instead of thinking about all the purchases you made, think about all the sins you've done. Can you imagine if I said today, like, let's just stop. I just want you to take a couple moments. We're going to write down every sin we've ever done. First of all, we don't have enough time. You're not going to remember all of them, but God knows everything. And you've got a debt against him, and he's an infinite God. And you can't even afford the minimum payment because to pay back that debt is to pay for eternity in hell separated from him. But look at what it says here. It says that he canceled that debt by nailing it to the cross. The picture that Paul's giving here is the way that Romans, when they would crucify people, would identify their crime as they would nail it above their head when they were crucified. They'd write it on a papyrus or just think of a piece of paper as like a, your statement for your credit card bill. They'd write all the, the sins that they were guilty of against Rome on the top of the cross, and they would crucify them to warn everybody else, not insurrection, don't steal. Here's the, this is a warning, don't do this stuff because here's the penalty. You think about what happened to our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was crucified. In John chapter 19, it says that he was brought before Pilate, and Pilate had him flogged to appease the bloodthirsty crowd. Then he comes out and he says to the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. Do you know what they say? Crucify him. He tries to persuade them and they just chant all the louder, crucify him. Pilate's functional God was politics and power and position and other people's opinions and so he does. And he crucifies Christ. But you know what he does? He puts above his head The crime, the crime is you're the king of the Jews. The Jews were upset about that. Say, no, no, just say that he said he's king of the Jews and paraphrase, but Pilate says, you just deal, all right? I wrote what I wrote. And they nail that above Jesus' head. What Paul's saying here is what was nailed above Jesus' head is your sin debt, all of your sins. Look at the passage. It says nailed to the cross. The word for canceling there in verse verse 14 is the idea of a papyrus where they take and they scrape all of the ink off of it so that it could be used again. Your debt has been canceled through the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? You are forgiven. So what are the implications of that identity of being forgiven? How do you know if that's aligned? Do you know what? You forgive. So I asked you if you could list all of your sins out today and write those out on paper. Could you do that? I bet we couldn't remember them all. Can you remember all the sins that have been done against you? I bet some of you, if I asked you, is there anyone you need to forgive, a person comes to your mind, maybe a face, a name comes right to your mind right away. What if you nailed that to the cross? What if you took that list today and wrote it out and you got home and nailed it to the cross, canceled that debt, let Jesus deal with that with that person? That's maturity. To not be there is putting you in a vulnerable spot for deception and bitterness and a detour from Jesus. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You are incredibly forgiven. But not only that, you're free. Your identity in Christ in this passage, there's a lot the Bible says about your identity in Christ, but here it says you're free. Verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's being spoken about here is a Roman triumph. What would happen for a Roman triumph is that when a general would win a battle, They'd come back to the, the Roman town that they were from, and they would have a parade. I read about one this week. It was three days long. The first day of the parade, they built scaffolding so that people had bleacher seating so they could watch. The first day of the parade, they brought in all the goods, all the treasures, the gold, uh, the statues, the art, all the valuable things, and people celebrated. Look how much more wealthy we are as a result of this, this victory. The second day, they brought in all the the soldiers that had been defeated, and the the armor with helmets and swords and quivers and arrows and breastplates, all this stuff, and people would see it, and it was actually scary for the audience because when they heard it rustling, it was so big and so powerful. The third day, they brought the captives. Those are the people that have been imprisoned and now are going to be the servants of this new community including the defeated king in this particular parade that I was reading about where they brought up a guy and he was the king, but now he was dressed in black and all of his servants were begging for mercy as they came in through the parade. And at the end of the parade was the conquering general dressed in purple. And the image that's being given here is that Jesus Christ is the victor. Amen? Through his resurrection, he's disarmed the enemy and he's triumphed over them that's your enemy, there is a battle. But here's what you need to know about your position in Christ. Because Jesus Christ has accomplished the victory through his death, burial, and resurrection, when you battle sin, when you battle the enemy, when you stand against Satan, when you resist the temptations, you're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from a place of victory. In fact, the Bible says about your victory, I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. I know we're a little bit past Easter now, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says in verse 55, oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? It's gone, Amen. Jesus Christ is risen. Galatians says this, for freedom you've been set free, so do not submit yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Amen? Don't get detoured by empty deception. It's going to lead you away. You have victory. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We read a verse when we were worshiping together this morning in Romans chapter 8 towards the end where it says nothing can separate you from the love of Christ not death, not principalities, not difficulties, not tragedies, not pandemics, not arguments, not politics, and none of that can separate you from the love of Christ. Amen? Do you know what Romans chapter 8 and verse 37 says right after that? Romans chapter 8 and verse 37 says that we're more than conquerors. Listen to this. Romans chapter 8 verse 37. Knowing all these things, difficulties, disasters, all the, all the stuff that's listed, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let me tell you what that means. Some of you are athletes, some of you have been in the military You know what it is to have an opponent, you know what it is to have an enemy How can you do more than defeat them? It's when you defeat them and then they serve you Not only do they wave the white flag, they now help you with your goals What's being said here is that Jesus Christ is so powerful and accomplished such a victory Not only did he take away your enemy's greatest weapon against you Which is your eternal damnation, that's been taken away, been stripped away He has no power but he will use anything that enemy brings into your life ultimately to accomplish his goals in your life. So that means the difficulties in your marriage, God will use for your sanctification, will use for the furtherance of the gospel. Even if you get killed, if you continue to walk with Jesus, the blood of the martyrs spreads the, war, the gospel everywhere. Amen? So the strategy that we talk about as a church, spiritual transformation in our lives, at leads to gospel saturation in the world. It can't be stopped actually because Jesus Christ has the victory. Amen? So don't give up. Don't ever give up father, we come before you. I pray that something I said at the beginning of this message would be wrong. I pray that when I said there were people here that five years from now will not be walking with you, that you would change that in this very moment. I pray for people that are watching online. I pray for people that are in this room that you would move. There are some that are being tempted to walk away from you right now. Bring them back. Bring them back. Show them how much you want them back. There are people that are believing lies and maybe they don't think they're that dangerous and they have convinced themselves they can have a functional Savior and a uh, Savior and Jesus and God, will you show them the truth, reveal truth? Keep us alert to deception. Help us to live aligned to our identity. I pray for every person who is hearing these words this morning that we'd be a little bit more like you as a result. If there's somebody here who doesn't know your son Jesus, you would give them life in Christ. If there's somebody here that has life in Christ but is not aligned with how they're living, God, will you bring us, in, bring us a, little, a step closer, one degree to another, make us a little bit more like your son Jesus and keep us all walking with you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.